Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the Vox Populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin, vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held as a votive not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. <laughs> Verily, this vicious soise of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it's my very good honor to meet you, and you may call me V. Are you like a crazy person? I'm quite sure they will say so. Hi, and welcome back to Brits and Flicks. Uh, I'm your host, Graham, and with me, as usual, is... Brian Lomax, from Brian Lomax Movie Talk. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about V for Vendetta. So, Brian, this is your choice. Do you want to tell us how you first discovered the movie? Yeah, I mean, the trailers for this were basically sold on the success of The Matrix. So it had, uh, from the creators of The Matrix, plastered all over it. It even looked like uh, Wachowski Brothers felt well. They were Wachowski Brothers back then, they're, they're now the... Wachowski sisters, siblings, whatever you want to call them. Um, it was from the Wachowskis. And, <clears throat> uh, yeah, James McTeague's name was really nowhere over the publicity material. This was his first film. He had been a, a second unit director on the Matrix trilogy. But, yeah, I, I, w- I went into this thinking this is the next Wachowski film. And the trailer was, I think more of an action-packed kind of film. It, it made you think, this. yeah, this was in the, in the kind of realm of The Matrix, that kind of action, heavy on the action. Um, and I didn't really know the comic book. I knew it existed, I was aware of it, um, the, the, the graphic novel by Alan Moore, but I'd never read it. So, yeah... I went into this expecting a big action film and I didn't get that at all. And I've got to say, I was severely disappointed. This was not the film that I was expecting from the trailers at all. Now, I may have been a little less surprised had I read the graphic novel first, but I didn't. So, yeah, I didn't get what I was expecting. And because of that, I think I kind of spat my dummy out and, and that was it. But there was something about the film that kind of, I don't know, just kept clawing at me. So I watched it a second time. And watching it on that second time, I I just came to it with a completely different mindset. Um, I came to it as a, a political thriller kind of film. It's a film full of ideas. And, yeah, I... I really, really enjoyed it that second time round. Third time round, it actually became even better. So it's going to be pretty evident from the outset uh, to those listening that this is one of my favourite films. And it it is one of those films that, for me, has just grown with each viewing. So every time I've watched it, I've just... Yeah, I've got more out of it. I've enjoyed it more. And it's just cemented itself 
within my mind as as, as one of my favourite films. Uh, and that's it. Yeah, that's that's really my history with the film. Much like yourself, I, I found that the Wachowski's name was plastered, like you said, all over this thing. I thought it was of them that actually directed it. Or when I was going to see it, I thought it was. Um, this came at about a phase when I was really into graphic novels and comics for a brief period where I was devouring what was pretty much named as the classics and this was always one that was up there as well along with like Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns and things like that this, these were just seminal comic books that I, I got my hands on and read and I read V for Vendetta a couple of times it's similar to the movie and it's, it's very heavy with lots of themes and lots of politics in amongst it and it's, it, it can be very overwhelming the first time you watched it and so the first time I watched it in the cinema, I was kind of looking for more of the action to alleviate from some of the heavier tones within the movie. And I felt a little bit disappointed as well. And I did go back to it again, but I can't really remember much from that viewing. But this time around, I definitely got a lot more from it, especially in the current political climate and things that are happening at the moment. I found it spoke a lot more to me and maybe that I've matured a little bit more and, and able to pick out these themes and uh, motivations throughout the movie. But... The first couple of times I saw it, I didn't, I didn't overly notice these. They didn't make, they didn't speak to me. They didn't make as much sense to me as they do now. And I definitely preferred the the, the graphic novel. Now when I look back to it, and I've had a flick through the the graphic novel again, I think they're both on par. They're both really good in the various mediums that they're in. But I think I actually prefer this stylistic approach of the the movie now. I don't want to jump too far into sort of things I want to talk about, so we'll just say <laughs> I'm ready just to get started on this. Uh, so why don't you just give us a brief synopsis before we, we delve into everything this movie has to offer? Okay. So when a terrorist calling himself V strikes at the heart of London by blowing up the Old Bailey, the corrupt government at which his attacks are aimed will stop at nothing to track him down. But as V slowly begins to unravel the web of lies that have kept this government in power for well over a decade, he starts to gain support from the British people. One such person is Evie Hammond, who becomes closely linked to V's terrorist acts, making her a wanted fugitive. When Evie is captured and tortured, supposedly by government operatives, she must decide whether to win her freedom by giving up the masked vigilante's whereabouts or free her mind and soul from the grip of a tyrannical state by allowing them to execute her for saying nothing. Meanwhile, a detective named Finch draws ever closer to the truth about V's real identity, drawing a link between this modern-day Guy Fawkes and the act of terrorism many years ago that had allowed the current Prime Minister his chance to rise to power. But in a world where allegiance is paramount, who will ultimately win the support of the people, and how far will Evie and Detective Finch go to preserve true democracy? Okay, so the first thing that I've got to ask is, can you comfortably put this into one genre? Because when I was listening, I, I could not. No, absolutely not. I, I'm not even sure what genre it mostly fits into. I mean, it's it's too much of a cop-out, really, to just call it a comic book movie. I mean, when when you consider the source material, when uh, when you look at anything that is adapted from more... Uh, material it's it's very hard to just simply say yeah it's a comic book movie it's it's far from being just a comic book movie Uh, but it's definitely 
a political thriller. He's heavy on the on the the politics and the the kind of thriller aspect. I would say. Yeah, I mean, I started to when I was taking notes for the podcast. I started to list what I kind of thought it was, and what I came up with is, you know, it's it's an action movie. It's got some thrilling elements. It's a dystopian sci-fi. It's very much a horror movie as well. It's a kind of prison drama from a, for a small period of the movie. It's sort of post-apocalyptic in certain parts of it. It's very much a sort of superhero movie as well with the V character. It's also a revenge movie with the whole plotline of V. And it's a mystery to figure out what happened to him, why this is happening. And at that point I was like, oh, hang on, I've got almost 10 kind of different genre types here and I could still list more and this it doesn't feel like any of them are given short shrift it feels as if they're all kind of fully expanded and they've got enough time spent on them it's got a little bit of everything in this movie and all the aspects were excellent in, in, in my protocol but let's, let's start with the, the beginning of the movie and the introduction of the two characters so at the very start of the movie you've got Evie and you've got V as they both get ready for their, their introduction to the movie. Evie's getting ready at our, our dressing table. V's doing exactly the same. And the characters come together in an alleyway. And that's when their relationship sort of starts. And you've got this unbelievably brave, I would say, introduction of the character of V when he first speaks. With his, his whole vernacular is just every three words beginning with V. And... Instantly you could see people getting put off with that because it's such a long speech. It's it's a lot of articulation and words that you should or some I didn't even know what they were what they meant. You know, you're just like, wow, this is just it's going and it's just gonna keep going. Yeah. And the surprising thing is it makes sense. If you actually if, if you if you go back and you listen to it, he isn't just coming out with every word under the sun that begins with V. He is making sense. It's discernible. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's, it's absolutely, and it just straight away it shows you the, the, the guy's uh, showmanship and mm. how he's extremely intelligent straight away. And the whole look of the mask as well is very um, formidable as he's introduced to Evie. What did you think when you first saw that opening scene of, of uh, V? I, I remember when I first saw it in the cinema, I, I was kind of taken aback by it. I was like... Is he going to speak like this through the whole movie? <laughs> it's like, is it, I mean, this. I'm impressed. I'm impressed at Hugo Weaving's delivery of of that dialogue, um, but I'm not sure I can take a whole movie of him speaking in this way. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a character from DC Comics uh, called the Demon, Etrigan the Demon, and he speaks through prose, so he's, he, he speaks in poetry, rhyming poetry most of the time. Um, and it kind of reminded me of that in a, in a way, uh, but I, th- I just thought, if he speaks like this the whole movie, I'm not going to be able to cope with it. But obviously when, once, once the film continues and you realise that's not the case, certainly when you go back and you watch it again, it, it just, yeah... I'm in awe of Hugo Weaving as an actor to be able to pull that off. 
But yeah. it, it just just like you say, as an introduction to the character, it tells us so much about him. It tells us a lot about his political leanings, about his uh, philosophies in life. It tells us, as you say, that he's a very intelligent character. And then we're backed up straight after that by his, his physical prowess when he takes down these guys. It is a brilliant introduction, um, but one that I think benefits definitely from a... Uh, from a second viewing, um, mm. as does m- most of the film, as I say. So you've got Natalie Portman's character of Evie, who's the one that we're supposed to sort of sympathise and, and see through the movie. And, and, and as it starts, she's um, she's very much just a, a sort of bubbly personality. She's a kind of void. She's just a girly girl at the start. She's all hair and makeup and mm. and going to meet our, our boss and, and things like that. It's a very sort of basic start for a character that has a really strong arc throughout the movie. What did you think of, of Natalie Portman in this movie? I mean, straight off the bat, she, I mean, she looks stunning as well, I think. I she, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure if she's ever looked better in this. Um, obviously, before she loses the hair, but even when she loses the hair, she doesn't look that bad, to be honest. But I absolutely love... Natalie Portman in this film. Um, I, I think some people can make an argument that, yeah, OK, it's not the best British accent in the world, but I think there's more to a performance than just getting the accent right. I don't want to jump ahead into the film, but particularly during the prison stuff, when she's been held against her will and, and then she's let out, when she finds out the you know the, who's behind all that, her reaction is, it, it floors me. It floors me every time. Um, it's a real honest, raw, emotional reaction. You get the sense that this woman has actually been brought to breaking point and, and, has, and has passed through it. She's passed through that fire. It's this knowledge, this realisation of herself as a person, of the strength that she has. And, then, and she just lets everything go because... She's been staring death in the face, and then obviously that's lifted. But yeah, it's, that scene is one of my favourite scenes in the film, the, where they're on the rooftop and it's raining, and then and then she finally just she just cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, but her performance there is yeah, like I say, it's one of my favourite aspects of the film. Uh, whether whether you like the accent or, or dislike the accent, I still think she delivers a cracking performance. You can say what you want about the accent, but it's it's definitely better than Dick Van Dyke's. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I, I want to talk about the other sort of character, the, the one that kind of fades into the background that you don't really see much of, and that's uh, Stephen Rees' character of Finch, mm. who is almost forgotten about until you're actually watching the movie and you realise which a big part he plays in it. <laughs> and it's, he is overshadowed by Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving's characters, but his his role is, is an honest cop, which mm. seems to be something that's unusual in this world that they set up. And, and yeah. he's, he's, he's just trying to get to the truth. It doesn't matter if it's going to upset the film system, he just wants the truth of what happened in this and he's starting to see the cracks in the government he's working for all the way through this investigation what did you think of Finch in this movie? Yeah I, I really like Stephen Ray I mean I, I I liked him since I saw him in Interview with a Vampire actually but here he yeah he's he's very um, contained he's playing a man that mm-hmm. 
has to keep his emotions in check because any kind of outburst could have you body bagged basically and uh, and taken off uh, yeah. so he, and i think he plays that well this this tension of wanting to say something wanting to speak out but having to keep your thoughts to yourself and it it's like as he's figuring stuff out it's kind of like well actually where's he going to go with it once once he's got the truth even if he gets mm-hmm. the truth what can he do with it in this society who will listen when the media is controlled so heavily by the government so you feel for him i think he is the eyes and ears for the audience in many ways evie is too but we get we get two characters who kind of sit on both sides of the law um who kind of become our eyes and ears for 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 everything that v is doing i really liked Stephen Ray in this and his his character as well. Um, he's, I I feel like we get more of an emotional kind of journey with Evie's character, whereas for sure Stephen Ray's character Finch is is more of an expositional character, which is quite a hard thing to play because mm-hmm. allowing character to come through with that kind of character um, is it's quite difficult. But I think he manages it. Just yeah. The, a sense of being trapped within the system that he that he works in. You also fear for the guy as well because he's. I mean, you, you know Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving are the stars of the show, so that the good's going to out with evil in the end. But this character who's playing a big part, he could conceivably be taken out at any moment, and you you feel that there's real weight in his investigation. If he mentions to the wrong person or he disturbs the wrong file, he could quite easily just vanish in his, into the ether never to be heard of again. So you've got a real sort of fear for this side character that he could be the one mm. to just vanish. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, the first time I watched this, I did not expect his character to get to the end. I really did think his character mm-hmm. was going to cop it in the final reel. Um, I thought he'd, he'd give yeah. us the information we need, he'd find out the information that we as the audience need, and then that's it, job done, he isn't needed. But... As is the case with this film, it, it's all about giving power back to the people. It's all you know. There's, there's there's a line in here where V says that a people should not be afraid of their government. The government should be afraid of their people. That's kind of really the whole ethos of the film. And and by the end of the film, it's not just down to Evie to pull that trigger um or pull the lever in in this case it's it's also down to finch mm-hmm. uh, she would not be able to do it if it wasn't for finch he has to allow her to do that the people have to be the ones to decide and i mean well, i'm jumping way ahead now but like i well, something i i really love about the end of the film is when everyone turns up at the end in the v masks and uh, big ben goes mm-hmm. up and people start taking the masks off, and you see characters that have been killed in the film, um, and they're they're still there. It's like they're there in spirit. It's like the people are all represented there, even even the voices of the dead, so to speak. That's a, a good point. Speaking of the people that, that get killed, it's a, a good cross section. They take that rather than trying to focus on too much of the population, they just pick key demographics. They kick. No small people and they focus all the way through them, mm-hmm. especially the young girl who becomes a sort of turning point later in the movie. 
but it's a nice touch to focus on these people and, and you feel as if they are well, they are part of the movie. You're not just seeing them once or twice, you're seeing them a few times as and just various milestones of the the larger plot and how it's affecting you know much of the population. It's like a, a, a sort of tester sample almost. But yeah, no, it's, it's a great sequence, that final part. Also, one of the other main characters is um, John Hurt as, as, as Sutter, who for much of the movie is just seen on overbearing screens, just shouting and pointing <laughs> down at everybody. Um, and it's such a, a, a great role and he's got such a, 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 just a face and he just, that voice as well as he's just barking orders at everybody. And it's such a great choice to make him not really be in the room with people, but just to be towering over them on these massive screens. There's a disconnect there, isn't there? It's just... Absolutely. He's a proper Hitler-Stalin-type character, um, but untouchable. Uh, he, mm. he just hides behind these screens. I think of all the roles in the film, I think John Hurt's character could be the one that grates on people's nerves the most simply because he, like you just pointed out, he spends much of his character's running time shouting. He, mm. he shouts everything. It's just like... And, and I, I think that's purposeful. I think he, they want the audience to, to, to literally feel like saying, shut up. Somebody, mm. please, shut this guy up. That's kind of how you, you feel about this character throughout the film. But, yeah, there isn't much more to say about him than that to be honest I, I think of, no. of all the characters he's probably the least fleshed out um, we don't really get much of a backstory we, we hear how he rose to power but we don't we don't necessarily get any deep insight into his belief system and why he believes what he believes he's just a, a bit of a tyrant for the for the sake of being a tyrant which you know is, is fair enough in, in a in a film where pretty much most of the characters are fairly well fleshed out i, I can kind of accept that mm-hmm. but i think they do kind of flesh out in a way by, by tying uh, very clear imagery to like you said stalin and hitler mm-hmm. you know they're using people's opinion of these people and thoughts of these people to flesh out his backstory is almost as a, as a, a cipher yeah. for, you know, Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Probably a, one of the last main characters is Stephen Fry as Dietrich. Every time I watch the movie, I kind of I like him even even more. He's, he's one of the first... He's in a position of power, but he's one of the first people to really make a stand against the government, and it's in such a really funny scene as well. <laughs> It's 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 funny, but it's also disturbing. Um, just I, 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 well, I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about actually the uh, the scene where he he takes the Mick out of S- Sutter. Yeah. I was actually thinking of of the stuff in, inside the house when he he kind of has a bit of a joke about with Evie and pret- pretend pretends that he's uh, he's V. Um, from her perspective, that it could kind of add up if it wasn't for the fact that he he's not the right body type or you know <laughs> in any way, shape, or form athletic. But that scene for me was quite disturbing when they break in and they they basically just smash his face in and then whip off with yeah. him the same way they did with her mother. Um, mm. Like she, for her, there's definite definite parallels between him and her mother. Um, but yeah, the 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 scene with. 
the Mickey take where they do the the farce kind of thing with with, with Sutter. They actually use John Hurt to play a body double of John Hurt, which yeah. I, I remember <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was a bit confused by. Uh, when I was watching in the cinema, I'm like, what is going on here? Um, and then I just realised, oh, all right, I get it. They're using John Hurt to play a really good body double of John Hurt. Um, fair enough. Very Benny Hill, I think. Yep, mm, definitely. Has a def- definite Benny Hill vibe to it. i got to say, mm. never been a big fan of Benny Hill at all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it works within the context of the film. Oh, absolutely. Is there any other character that you want to talk about? Or? There is, yeah. Um, I can't remember the name of the character, actually, but it's the lady that V kills, but he does it in a rather humane way, and she has this real redemptive moment where she effectively confesses her sins and, and apologises, and, and she says that you know her words... You know, they, they they probably don't mean that much to him, and and he's like, well, actually, words are all we have, kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I really like that moment. It's it's quite a touching moment. It's a beautiful moment, and mm-hmm. you almost expect V to let her off the hook, but he doesn't. Yeah. He he's mm-hmm. the, the fact of the matter is she she did what she did, and she's not been punished for it. So now she she's going to be punished, mm-hmm. and. Even though she's sorry, genuinely sorry, and I think that does kind of bring redemption for her character, she still needs to be punished for her crimes, and she is accordingly. But she is also the only one that, that's not taken out in a violent manner. As, as V says to her after the fact that he killed her ten minutes ago, yeah. you know, he gives her a sort of mercy killing. Yeah. But then again, it could be that he knows this person and he knows that she may be the one to genuinely talk her way out of it. So he's saving himself the anguish of having to kill somebody who's genuinely repentive, mm. you know, and he does it beforehand yeah. to save himself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's a really nice moment, and it, it it's nice to have one of these characters not be totally villainous because we get we get the priest, we get the media guy, the 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 one who's basically the mouthpiece for for Sutter. Uh, we get Sutter, and then we get the we get Sutter's right hand man. I can't remember his name as well, but Creedy. Creedy, that's the one. So literally, all of the villains in this are full on one note in kind of just just bad people. So it's it's nice yeah. to have this one of them in there who actually she knows what she did and she feels sorry for it. She regrets it in many ways. So yeah, that that was nice to see. Right, so this brings me to uh, V's whole plotline type of thing. Now, is he doing a political stand? Is he doing this for the people, to free the people? Which could be one way of taking it, or the way I took it to be is he is getting revenge. He's taking these people out. It's not. I don't really think it's about the rest of the population. I think he is taking revenge on these people, and he wants to bring down what they've built. I just think he's using the people to help get his message across, which I, I, I feel that I'm in the kind of minority with that. I definitely think that is an aspect of what he's doing. I don't I don't think it's just vengeance that drives him. Um, if it was just vengeance that drives him, he would get close to these people and kill them, and that's it, he'd be done with it. But he puts so much effort 
so much effort and planning into putting the decision into the power in, into the people's hands, um, into giving power to the people. He could have done this under the radar. He could have offed each of these people quietly before anyone had realised what was going on. He, his, his work would be done. If you know that's vengeance, um, but I think it's more than that. It's, it's about more than vengeance. He wants justice. He believes that certain people deserve to be punished under the judicial system, which currently is ineffectual, so he has to take it in his own hands. Uh, but he does absolutely want to give the power back to the people. I believe he's absolutely politically minded, politically driven. Um, and I don't, I don't think one weighs more over the top of the other. Obviously, if he, if he didn't have vengeance as his... Um, as his base ground, the thing that kind of kicked it all off, then he never would have been brought to this point. But I think he needs to believe in something higher. I don't think he, I don't think he would find it acceptable to himself to just go on a mission of vengeance, even though that is a, a huge part of what he is doing. And and who knows? Maybe maybe in some deep seated level the whole political aspect, the whole giving the power to the people is his way of justifying his vengeance. Maybe he's mm. told himself so many lies over the years, made it about, you know, this political thing so that he doesn't have to confront the fact that actually all it is is vengeance. It's just a, it's a byproduct of his vengeance. Definitely, yeah. Because it's even the person that he, he puts it into Evie's hands to make the decision at the end of the movie. But throughout the whole prison sequence... He has made Evie almost his surrogate to experience exactly what he kind of went through. So, yes, he's given her the decision, but he's pre-implanted what her choice is already going to be through that series of events. Well, no, I mean, personally, I, th I think that that is all about showing Evie who she really is. He recognises that Evie lives in a world where she has no control, no power where she feels at the mercy of a system that is corrupt. And by doing what he does, he gives her back the power. And it's, it, you know, there's the whole thought process that actually there are worse things than death. Freedom isn't about being alive. It, is, it, it has to be more about that. Having control over what you do and who you are as a person in the time that you're given is more a point it is more important than having longevity. Um, having a long life within a system that takes all of your power, all of your control, is is no freedom at all. And I think he shows her that. Like I said, it's one of the most powerful scenes in the film. And once she recognises that, once she, once she comes to terms with that, she's truly free. She's She's able to walk the streets again without fear of, of being caught and there's that story that she gives where she meets a, a woman she used to work with in the post office and she drops something and they kind of they look at each other face to face and this woman just doesn't even recognize her anymore and I feel that that's more than just because she has a bald head I, I feel it's because her her entire demeanor has changed her entire kind of personal outlook on life has changed um, and I think that comes through her body language so to, to the point where she is a completely different person she's free people could imprison her they could torture her 
but she mm. would remain free because f- true freedom exists within the mind. That to me is is all is everything that that V has done there. I don't think it's simply about making her go through what he experienced because not all people are the same. Some people in that situation mm. would break. You know, they they would tell, and I think he feels like if he's going to give power over to a person to to do to do the act because I believe that's when he decides to give the power over to Evie um, and, yeah. and in order in order to make sure that she's the right one he puts her through what he went through to to make sure that she gains this understanding of freedom that he has yeah so the, the whole prison sequence it is something I, I still have a small issue with and I feel it's, it's a necessary sequence in the movie to give Natalie Portman's character that that change but I do feel that it sort of breaks up the movie by such a large chunk it just condenses it down into a, 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 it breaks the flow of the movie for me and I know you you love this movie and you, and you love that sequence and that's a great sequence I couldn't see it being taken out of the movie but it does make the movie feel a little disjointed that's when it, it changes from being this uh, political anguish movie to, to, to a sort of prison movie for is it thirty minutes, forty minutes? It's a long, stretched-out period of the movie. Well, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's actually about twenty minutes, I think. But I think it's so pivotal. It's it's everything that the movie is about. The movie is about freedom. What what is true freedom, and at what cost should we fight to get it? And I don't think you can talk about freedom without showing someone having their freedom taken away from them. There's you know, Shawshank Redemption is one of the. That, that's one of the big themes in that, and there's, yeah. this, there's this whole line that um, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. It's just this idea that actually, it's not walls that imprison you. It's it's your mind. It's you, all the power you have is in your mind, no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances. And I feel like that's what the film is really trying to tell us so remind me again during this sequence when it goes to the whole prison sequence do, do we do we go anywhere else do we cut back to uh, Creedy or Sutter or anything like that or, or Dietrich or do we just stay with the whole prison story we, we, we stay with them but we, we see this story as well of this woman mm, yeah the woman yeah. who writes the letter well I, I think that's what I'm trying to articulate we, we kind of stop everything else in the movie to focus on this one a segment and we, we don't really see what the rest of the country's up to what the, the, the bad guys are doing but they're forgotten about for a large chunk of the movie they're never gonna be doing anything different to what they have been though have they I mean literally v, V's gone underground Evie's gone with him mm-hmm. they're, ne- they're never gonna find them because of where V has hidden them so he, he could stay there for five years, as far as we're concerned. It wouldn't really matter. You get out, the, the government's still going to be in play. They're going to, still going to be doing the, the same things they've always been doing. I don't know, it just, it's never bothered me. It's one aspect of the film that has just really never bothered me. I've, never, I've not even thought about it in that way, because by that mm-hmm. point of the film, I'm so intrigued by what's going on. I'm so intrigued by this character of Evie and, and what's going on. The, the, the thing about the prison sequence is that right from the get-go, I know it's V. I know it's V that... And this, I got this even on the first viewing, have, you know, and having not even read the, the, the graphic novel, right off the bat, I knew this, this is V. V's doing this. To what end, I... I 
don't quite know. And that isn't revealed, obviously, until, you know, until she she gets out and actually you realise, yeah, this is about instilling that that power of the mind within her, the, the freedom in her mind. But I knew it was V. So the real question is, why doesn't that bother me? Because it... it it kind of works like a twist, doesn't it? It works. I mean, I mean, if if people didn't get that from from right from the get go that it was V doing this, then when they find out it's V, I would imagine that'd be quite a nice. Oh yeah, that was a blimey! It was V. You know, that'd be kind of WTF moment. But for me, it wasn't. But it didn't bother me because even recognizing that V is doing this for, 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 from the get go, it, it you're still thinking, what's his game? What is mm. he hoping to achieve here? And and that is the intrigue. Uh, that that's it's it's those character moments and like I say, this story of of this woman who who writes the letter that it gets me invested. It it really gets me on Evie's side. It makes me question these methods somewhat. But I, I love I love the whole sequence. It's like I like I say, it's my favourite sequence in the film. Um, particularly when once she gets out of the yeah. uh, of the cell. But Natalie Portman sells it so well because you really do see the change in her. Mm. Um, and you, you, like I said, she's got the, the sort of biggest arc in the film movie and that whole the just breaking down of the individuality of the person. And she's not a strong person to start off with, I don't think. Um, she's kind of timid in, in, in herself and this just tears her down. She comes out and she's suddenly so strong. She's standing up to V. She's telling him what she's going to do and you can see just a complete 180. Mm. Uh, in a performance, but just well, it's in my head as well. When you say the whole movie's the freedom part of it as well, there's even, it's all over the movie. And um, one of the scenes I like is when V's watching. Is it the Count of Monte Cristo? Yeah, yeah. You know, a movie about a man that's wrongly imprisoned as as well. It's, it mimics his own tale. You've made the decision throughout the full of the movie to show your main character with a mask on, not giving any facial expression, not giving eyes, not giving the windows to the soul for people to connect to. And it's such a, a brave decision. And I read into it a bit and they, they tried, they did a bit, uh, think about giving the mask different sort of small mannerisms so you could see it changing scene to scene, but they stuck with the one mask and they just changed the lighting about to try and create a mood with me. But it was such a brave decision to cover up one of your main actors. You know, and he has a notable face from, you know, Lord of the Rings or the Matrix movies and use this mask and think it, it works because of the political message of the movie because V as everyone to, to take the mask off at any point would have stripped him yeah. and gave him an identity where he could literally be anybody throughout it and I, I love the mask, it's such an iconic symbol yeah, within the movie it's taken on imagery itself but in our current life as well it's taken on even more imagery mm. it's, it's grew out of the movie and came into our real world yeah, it's just you see it everywhere. Don't you? I think it's misused a lot of the times, to be honest. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, every idiot who has some kind of cause decides to stick the mask on because they think oh, this is this is what V's all about. When actually they just yeah. they don't quite they don't get the point. Basically, they they completely miss the point. But it is a brave decision. It's why you cast someone like Hugo Weaving. I mean, Hugo Weaving wasn't originally cast as mm-hmm. V for this. They, I can't remember who it was. They it was uh, James Purefoy. James Purefoy. Oh my goodness, that would have been a completely different movie. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would not have liked that at all. Um, 
But Hugo Weaving has one of the, the most distinctive voices in Hollywood. Um, he's the voice of Megatron, you know. Um, it's uh, He does have a really distinctive voice. He has a very particular way of speaking. I mean, that's yeah. what, one of the things that I really love about Agent Smith in the Matrix trilogy. Um, mm. He gets some really hilarious moments in those films, and it's literally because of the way he speaks. If you'd have cast someone else as Agent Smith, you wouldn't get some of the humour that nope. was there. That that was there entirely because of Hugo Weaving's delivery. Yeah, and and <clears throat> he brings that here, and also his body language. This is a a physical yeah. performance. We talked last podcast about what's his face uh, from from Terminator 2, uh, the T-1000, Robert Patrick. I kept on wanting yeah. to say Jason Patrick, but it's, yeah. R- Robert Patrick. We, we talked a lot about Robert Patrick last episode mm-hmm. with his physical performance, how the, how the character of the T-1000 that he plays, it's, it's, it's this, yeah, it's a physical performance. And I believe equally so here, but add to that, like I say, that really distinctive Hugo Weaving voice, and this just becomes one of the most memorable characters in cinema, for me at any rate. Um, some people might find that to be a pretty bold statement, but for me, it's, he's definitely up there. If I was to do a list of the most memorable characters of cinema, he would be very high up on the list. Almost without having facial expressions or eyes or anything to look into, you, you kind of concentrate more on, on what he's doing, how he's moving mm. and things. I, I, one of my favourite scenes with V is, is not any of the action scenes, it's when Evie um, wakes up and he's cooking at the stove and he's got the, the cooking apron on. <laughs> yeah. It's just... It's just what an image. I think it's fantastic and he's just pottering about and uh, well I just digress I just like that scene yeah no it is it's good I I like the injection of humour just in little moments like that can I just say as well about James McTeague his direction of this film now I I've heard mixed stories a lot of people I think try and make out that actually he he didn't have as much direction on this as as his credit would would have us believe, and that the Wachowskis often took over. I accept that this is definitely a Wachowski script. It's got it's got their thumbprints all over it, their fingerprints all over it. But I have seen other films by James McTeague, and I do think as a director he's actually quite good. His later work hasn't had the uh, the the quality of scripts that he has here to work with. But certainly as, as a visual director, he, he carries the stamp that he made here over to those films. And those films are A Ninja Assassin, which is a real guilty pleasure of mine. Yeah, um, I really like that as well. Yeah, I do. I, I, I do think it's a fantastic film. Um, it, it's, it's not the best written film, but it, it, as far as guilty pleasures goes, that's up there with the best of them. He also did The Raven, which I thought was quite underrated. But again... That mm-hmm. uh, that has that kind of visual flavour about it that that mm-hmm. you you could easily recognise as James McTeague if if the only film you know him from is V for Vendetta. Yeah. So uh, he's he's had another film out recently with uh, Mila Jovovich, um, which I I haven't seen. The trailer didn't look that great, but I feel like this is a director who has kind of been let down maybe by by 
some of the scripts he's given, mm-hmm. but he does know how to direct. So, yeah, I'd like to just give him credit here for, for this film. I think he did a wonderful job. And this was a quite a small budget as well. There's not a huge budget on this film. I think it was originally earmarked for the Wachowskis to direct, but after the Matrix sequels, they, they, they wanted to take a break from it. Mm. And they, they brought in this guy that they had worked with. Yeah. before on the Matrix movies and things like that. So it was obviously somebody that they'd handpicked and it was somebody that they may have mentored through the directing process to, to say that they directed it, then why wouldn't they just have directed it to yeah. start with, you know? And and they were producers, so they probably were hands-on with a lot of aspects of the movie, but I'm pretty sure it's the director's movie. Mm. Like you said, you can see aspects in other movies as well. I think that's a little bit unfair. Um, simply because they wrote it and they produced it. Yeah. There is a few nice bursts of action, Uh, particularly the final fight scene with Creedy and his men. It's all kind of done in slow motion. Very bullet time-like. Yeah, yeah, quite quite bullet time-like. And much of that sequence was in the trailers, again, one of the reasons why it it kind of made it look like an action-heavy Matrix-style film. The short bursts of action when they come, they're quite enjoyable. Um, they, mm-hmm. they do get the adrenaline pumping. And I think they have more impact as a result of being sparse. It, like when you go back to a film like The Matrix, uh, particularly the sequels, because they are so action-heavy, the, the action can... You, you can kind of become numb to it in many ways. Mm. Um, I mean, that's not to take anything away from the first Matrix film. It's still a classic. It's an absolutely yeah. brilliant film. But you can kind of become numb to the action when it's when there's that much of it. I mean, I think there's like three kind of big action scenes. You've got, you've got the, the one at the beginning where V takes out the two, two guys. And then you've got the one where he takes over the studio. Um, yeah. The SWAT team go in. And then obviously you've got the, the big fight scene at the end with Creedy mm-hmm. and his men. And I think having it spaced out like that, it, like I say, when it when it happens, it makes more of an impact, I think. Overall, I, I do like Beaver Vendetta. I, I'm not as, as much into it as you are. I, I do think it was it was very good. It, it was better. I watched it twice in three nights. I, I was that into it. I wanted to experience it more. And I get different things out of it each time. And I think that's one of the strengths of the movie. It can be... Whatever mood you're into, whatever movie you're looking for, you're probably going to find it in here because it's almost chameleon-like. I think it takes some very brave decisions, especially with the actor not showing the face. And I think it some pacing issues that I do have, I'm willing to forgive them because I feel that they couldn't really take any of the scenes out of the movie. But yeah, V for Vendetta, a solid movie, really good action, really good storyline, really good mystery, some great performances, especially by Natalie Portman, who I think is, is great in the role. And it's a really brave attempt to circumvent the city blockbuster because it is not your conventional blockbuster, mm-hmm. not by a long shot. And I think, if anything, it should be commended for that alone. And I can understand why people are put off because it's not paint-by-numbers blockbuster movie making. Overall, I think I would give, or I did give, Viva Vendetta, four out of five on Letterbox. Still a really good movie. I, I just echo everything you just said, really. The only difference being that for me, it just it just cut deeper. I, I like movies that just make me one think and two feel. 
You know, some movies are 2001 A Space Odyssey. They make you think, but they don't really make me feel all right, like. Uh, other movies are, you know, they're, they're weepies. They make me feel, but I don't necessarily think. And then I get films like this that does both. Like I say, the, the, the minor characters that are littered throughout, they're fleshed out really well. We get a sense of who they are as people. We get good backstories that makes us feel for their plight when they're killed off. And they have something to say with them. You know, they're not just there for, for exposition, they're there to make points. Um, and that point just, again, like I say, being about freedom and, and how it really exists in the mind. And, and I, yeah, I just, I just like everything that this film has to say. There's so many quotable lines of dialogue and like I, there was a scene, the, the scene where V kind of first introduces himself to the people, when he breaks into the uh, the TV network and he gives this speech. Um, again, like you know, the, the, there is something seriously wrong with this country, and then he goes into this whole speech about, well, what's wrong with this country? Why is it wrong? And then he turns. He turns the camera on the people. He says, "You know what? It's wrong because we've let it get this way." And like you said before, it's so relevant even mm-hmm. now. It's, it's a, it feels like a film that you know you, you look you look at some of the footage at the beginning, and it, it it definitely relates to what happened down in London with the the uh, the underground bombings. Yeah, and this this I mean this the release date on this was actually pushed back because of those bombings. Um, there was some talk about, you know, get, removing some scenes as a result of those bombings. So, you know, it, it came out around that time, and of of course it would feel relevant then, it maybe a little bit on the nose even. But even now, you know, so many years after, it feels even more relevant. So it doesn't feel like, actually, by by having that stuff in at the beginning, you're only speaking to people... 10 years ago it, it just seems to have grown in relevance i think and it's it's kind of it's one of those films that it's it's like a call to arms it makes me want to get my ass off the couch and do something i don't know what i want to do but i want to do something yeah. i want to be some kind of activist in a way i don't know how to deal with that i don't know how to process it but i, I love that the film makes me do that uh, so yeah definitely a 10 out of 10 for me it's one of my favorite movies we'll see where it ranks in my uh, graphic novel adaptations a little later on uh, well mm-hmm. in just a few moments actually but yeah 10 out of 10 right okay so you as you mentioned we are top five for this episode is top five graphic novel adaptations and that doesn't just mean superhero movies it could be anything so number five on my list is scott pilgrim directed by edgar wright now i had read the scott pilgrim books in fact i've read all the books that are on my top five and i love these books and when i heard he was going to direct them i was like i don't know how i don't know how he's going to do it at all and i was there for opening night to see it and it was exactly like the books and i it's a movie that gets a lot of hate I know a lot of people like it, but I absolutely adore Scott Pilgrim. It is a perfect movie. And my number five is Scott Pilgrim. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah, basically everything you just said. I mean, I've I've not read the books. Um, Before the film came out, I I went online and had a look at some of the pages out of them and just to kind of get a feel of it, uh, get what the vibe was. Because I'd seen the trailer and I was like, Mm -hmm. I wonder what this is like in comparison. It did look pretty much kind of, you know, translated from the page to the screen. 
plus I really like Edgar Wright, you know, love Shaun of the Dead, really like Hot Fuzz, have yet to see At World's End, but I, I, I'd go so far as to say that it's his best film so far. Um, and it made me really upset when he got ditched from, from Ant-Man. Um, I'd have loved to have seen Ant-Man in his hands. Yeah, I love it. It's just, again, it's a simple concept. You know, you talk about the concept of John Wick. Scott Pilgrim's just as simple. He's dating a girl. She's got seven evil exes, or however many it is. Yep, and, seven. and they're going to fight him. That's mm -hmm. it. That's your deal. So it's one fight after another. But each person who comes along and fights him is a different character, because it kind of yeah. brings something else out. And I love Chris Evans in the film. Oh, yeah, he's I think he's fantastic. absolutely brilliant. He's just hilarious. Yeah, I love the way it's directed, the, all the fast cuts. I feel like Wright took what he'd kind of learned and practised in Scott Pilgrim and Hot Fuzz and really perfected it in Scott Pilgrim. He found the mm. material that was right for his style of direction. Um, yeah. So, yeah, great stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a movie that, in a, f a few more years, it's going to be revered for how good it was. I think it was just a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, people do. It's one of their movies people pass on. Because um, no one went to see it at the cinema, but when they've eventually seen it on DVD, they're like, why didn't I go and see this at the cinema? And then they pass it to their friends and like, you've got to see this, seriously, it's really cool. Um, so yeah, definitely, it's, it's going to be one that grows, I think, in status. Number four on my list is Zack Snyder's Watchmen. Again, an Alan Moore comic. <laughs> I think Watchmen is is fantastic, and it's it's back to when Zack Snyder was actually pretty good. Um, hey, watch your tongue. Watch your tongue. <laughs> or when he was when he was allowed a lot more freedom, and not shackled by uh, when he wasn't told to cut half an hour of his film out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but we'll get to that in the watch list because I've got a few uh, things I need to say about that. Right. But Watchmen, it, it was like an, an adult superhero movie. You know, when it popped out the scene, it was dark, it was gritty, it was very cinematic, super, superly well shot. It just it looked dank, gritty, dark. Um, with the exception of uh, the ending is a little bit different from the graphic novel. but Better, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, you've got a giant squid appearing, <laughs> you know. It's, and, and people actually complained about that, I you know. know. Where's the giant squid? Yeah. And you're like, come on, it's not in this world. It's unrealistic. Mm. Come on. Uh, but I think the movie's fantastic. I think the the cast of sort of, not unknowns, but say, not as famous actors as they could have got mm. really benefits as well. Yeah. One of my favourites, Matthew Good's in this. He's a guy that seems to appear every now and again and and it can be in a, a rom-com like Leap Year or something <laughs> or it can be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah nonsense or he can just come out of nowhere and stoke her and just mm. steal the the film movie out of nowhere I mean he's, he's good in Watchmen but I don't want to get stuck on Stoker I love that movie right. and I think his performance is excellent but Watchmen is my number four yeah. Downton Abbey as well Matthew Good I've not seen that. He's, yeah, he's in the later seasons of Downton Abbey. Uh, yeah, my number four is A History of Violence. I can't say I've read the graphic novel. To be honest, for all of these except my number one choice, I've not read the graphic novel. The, the num right. My number one choice, I've read the graphic novel. But mm -hmm. yeah, A History of Violence, really great David Cronenberg film. Fantastic performance from Viggo Mortensen. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a great kind of study on violent behaviour and 
a violent personality. Uh, just a really good gangster flick as well. Ed Harris is, is great in it. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have much more to say of, uh, about it than that. I, I think maybe one day we, we could do a... Uh, we could do a podcast episode on a history of violence, but yeah, I really liked it. It's, it's kind of a good discussion on the effects of violence as well, because we have the, the the all the stuff in there about the sun, which quite a lot of people complained about. Actually, a lot of people don't like the that aspect in it, but the the sun kind of when he sees his father, obviously take the law into his own hands in the diner. Um, or mm-hmm. hears about it on the news. He does the same with some bullies at school. So it's it's that yeah, it's the the passing of the violent behaviour down to the family and whatnot. And, and it, yeah, yeah there's, there's there's plenty of other stuff in there, but that's my number four. Yeah, I've not seen that in a, a good few years. I, I seem to remember a really interesting opening sequence with two of the gangsters. Mm, yeah. 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 It's a, it's a bit hazy now, but I just remember that the movie was fantastic. It, w- it wasn't a long movie either. It was fairly uh, condensed. Yeah. R- really yeah, tightly good. edited, I thought. Yeah, great choice. Uh, number three on my list is V for Vendetta. <laughs> uh, I don't really have too much to add because we've just spent about an hour talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. My number three is Road to Perdition, which is the Sam Mendes gangster film. The cinematography in that film is immense absolutely immense now i i believe that was the last film by that cinematographer i think it was, it was the same guy that uh, sam mendes had worked with on um american Amazing. beauty and he just does an exquisite job uh it, it's just you look at that film and, and you just can't take your eyes off it but it's just a really good gangster film as well. Some great performances, a great lead turn from Tom Hanks, playing quite a different character in many ways to what he'd played up to that point. Jude Laws, this really creepy kind of hitman in it. He's he's just he's a bit weird, but also uh, oh man, what's his name? I, I, tonight, I'm terrible with names tonight. Yeah, Daniel Craig's really good in it as well, but also the the. Paul Newman. Paul Newman, that's the one. So Paul Newman is really great in it. It's it's one of his last kind of tour de force performances. There's a lot of elements in there that have become familiar in in gang in gangster films, and were maybe even familiar when this was done, to be honest. But yeah, just a really great film, brilliantly directed by Sam Mendes as well. Just beautiful mm-hmm. to to look at. Yeah, I, I haven't actually seen that since the cinema. Since it last came out, so that's that's well worth a, a rewatch for me. I'll need to go and visit out. Uh, number two is Three Hundred. Okay. Now, when Three Hundred hit in the cinemas, it was visually unlike anything that we'd seen before. <laughs> I can see by your your face that <laughs> you've got this coming at some point. Um, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I just. Uh, yeah. I, I'm just thinking. I, Sex night of fanboy. I tell you something. I, I, before Zack Snyder got a wee bit later in his career, I, I was definitely into like a Sucker Punch. I think it's fantastic, which gets hated on all the time. But I love Sucker Punch as well. <laughs> so yeah, I put my hands up to that. But three hundred, three hundred is a phenomenal movie, and it's one of those ones that if you just catch on TV, I need to see the rest of it. You know, it's mm. you know, it's pretty much green screen. Yeah. Ish, but it's still extremely visual and unlike anything you've seen before. And some of the choices and the way they've made it very much like the the comic in certain panels and things like that, you know, blocking everything out, having silhouettes, the strange yeah. story, 
the, the, the weird creatures that they add into this story as well. It's supposed to be based on, you know, actual things that happen, but mm. obviously it's not. It just <laughs> the whole look. I think it's the look that get me straight away. But then the story backs it up. You know, it's just and every time I watch it, I'm just hoping at the end that he nails him with that spear. You know, you know he's never going to because history. You know, could you not change that? But mm. it's I, I absolutely adore three hundred. Uh, I do like. 300 quite a lot as it happens and I will go on record as saying I am a Zack Snyder fanboy I love all of his films and yes even Sucker Punch I like I think Sucker Punch is his worst film to date but 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 I still like it um I I I I think it's a great concept (coughs) Man of Steel (coughs) Man of Steel is one of his best films don't even get me started on Man of Steel. Listen, I'm going to be po- I'm going to be posting. I'm going to be emailing you a particular video that I found the other day in defence of Man of Steel that points out all the crap criticisms people have for it and why that why their criticisms just don't wash. I love Man of Steel. It's one of my favourite comic book movies. Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I love Zack Snyder. I love his films. I think people are too hard on him and not hard enough on the studios that that take his properties. But my second choice is V for Vendetta. So my number two is V for Vendetta. And as you said, we've already discussed it, so there's no point me going on any more about it. As I get to my number one, as I've been through my list, they're all kind of very visually styled movies. And I think that's probably what I, I... I say go to most is the, the the visual look and aesthetic of a movie, and none more so than my number one, which is Sin City. Um, I I read the books. I was a great fan of the books, and again, the whole style is is like I mean, it's it's most like a comic book that thing than I've ever seen. You know, I've never seen anything else like it. The, the, even though the tale is kind of broken up into these vignettes, almost, yeah. and it's it's fractured storyline because it's small stories that clump together. I've never. I never experienced anything like seeing that first time in the cinema before because it just took my breath away the way the whole thing looked. Don't get me wrong, they've completely tarnished it with the sequel that they brought out, which was just utter tosh. Oh, but, come on, it's, it's a little unfair. Oh, it's no, I hated that thing. Unfair. Really? Hated it. Hated Blimey. it. And, I, and Sin City, from, it actually took Sin City down for me. It made the first, It was that bad it made the first one not as good in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, I, I just, but I think the, the reason I prefer Sun City to maybe three hundred or some other movies in my uh, list is the performance of Mickey Rourke is is Marv in the whole series. I think it's fantastic. Like I said, the visual look of it, the white and the black, the characters with the dashes of red throughout it, or the dashes of colours, just such a unique. And it's back when Robert Rodriguez was actually edgy and made some good stuff. In fact, it's probably the last good movie that he did make, yeah. which is a shame because it was a director that I really liked in the late 90s, early 2000s. He's just kind of died away. But Sin City is my number one graphic novel adaptation. <clears throat> Sin City came this close to making my top five. Um, really did. It was a film that when it, when it first came out of the cinema, I, I gave a 10 out of 10. I just thought this is... I've never seen anything like this before. So, yeah, I, I, I thought it would be more influential, to be honest. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it did influence Zack Snyder's 300. Unfortunately, we got the spirit shortly after, and I think that, oh, God. that yeah. kind of, yeah, that tarnished that style of filmmaking to the point where, yeah, 
I mean, by the time you got to Sin City 2, people just don't seem bothered at all, mm. which is a shame, because, yeah, the first Sin City was incredible. But my number one, and to prove my earlier statement that I am indeed a Zack Snyder fanboy, Watchmen is my number one choice. Just, I'll say it, it's a masterpiece. I really do think it's a masterpiece. It's just an epic movie on every every sense of the word. People rip Zack Snyder a new one all the time. They, they, it, it annoys me. It really does. It's like they take some kind of intellectual high ground that because Zack Snyder is so, is such a visual artist, then, oh, well, that, that's all he is. And I just don't believe that that's the case at all. Watchmen is a book that had some of the biggest names in Hollywood directors attached to it who came on and off the project because they just couldn't do it. They couldn't get their head around how to adapt it. Zack Snyder just did it literally. He took it from the page and he put it on screen. And I think that's been quite influential in many ways. I read a comment just on Facebook, actually, just the other day from someone who said that Zack Snyder has influence has had no influence on on Hollywood. I I just don't believe that that's true. I think uh, the way that people can do direct adaptations now of of comic books is is very much because of him. Yeah, Watchmen is just it's so dense, mm -hmm. really yeah. dense. Like you you get to the end of it and you feel like you've had a workout. There are just scenes in there that are brilliantly handled like the the opening montage sequence when it's when it's giving the history so it's, it's telling you like that it's it's the setup basically and it's going through like, the history of superheroes and this that and the other but it, it's it's just beautifully done um it's brilliantly handled and you know you, you have to credit snyder for that you, you just have to yeah uh, brilliant characterizations. The things that he has changed from the graphic novel, as I've already said, I think were for the better. So he, yeah. he actually improved on the source material. And, and like you say, haters are going to hate. People who yeah. have already made up their minds about Zack Snyder hate that film and they look mm. for things to hate. So, you know what? They didn't have the giant squid at the end. Zack Snyder's a prick. Uh, I hate yeah. him. Uh, he's he's ruined the graphic novel. It doesn't change the the tone or the themes or anything like that of the graphic novel by by changing something as as minute as that. I just think he handles it like a master. Um, so and it, yeah, it's one of my favourite movies. It's in my top ten movies of all time. I don't watch it regularly just because it's it's so long. It's it's epic and like I say, it's it's a bit of a workout. But I, I love it. Um, they, the only thing in it, the only thing in it that, that I don't like is the rather inappropriate song choice during the sex scene. They, they use, um, is it Hallelujah they use, but the, the original version... And it's, it's, yeah, it just, it doesn't sound right. It sounds like a dodgy porno video. It, it, mm. it, it looks like a dodgy porn when it's, when you've got that music playing over the top of it. And yeah, it, it just didn't work. Um, but other than that, you're talking about a 20 second sequence in a three hour epic. So yeah, 10 out of 10, brilliant film. Um, that's it, that's my top five. We do have a couple of comments on Twitter 
from, right. pe- from people who gave their top five graphic novel adaptations. Uh, so I've just got two. Um, Chris Dunn from uh, Dunster71 YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, his top five are 30 Days of Night, Silent <laughs> Hill. Uh, Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From Hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I didn't like all that much, if I'm being honest. Uh, I loved 30 Days of Night. I thought 30 yeah. Days of Night was brilliant. Sin City and V for Vendetta, which, of course, we have both mentioned. Um, and second, we've got Luke Ryan from Razor Wire Reviews, again from YouTube, who says Akira, uh, which is one that I completely forgot about, to be honest. I've um, never seen that. All oh, right. Okay. I do think it's somewhat overrated, but I, mm-hmm. I I I get it. I understand why people love it so much. It's it's you know it's very innovative. Um, Nautica of the Valley of the Wind. Uh, that's one I've not seen, so I'll have to check that out. Watchmen, which we both put in our top five, mm-hmm. seems to be a regular. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns, which I'm assuming is the he's talking about the animated. Films, mm-hmm. the, the two-parter. And Blue is the Warmest Colour. Right, I've not seen that one either. Yeah. I've heard of it, but I've not, I've not seen it. Yeah, I've heard a lot about it, but I've, I've not seen that one either. So, yeah, a few on there that I need to check out. Good list. Okay. Um, so we move on to the watch list then. Yeah. I just want to keep this uh, Snack Snyder uh, gravy train running. So I'm <laughs> going to go straight on with uh, Batman v Superman, the Ultimate Edition, I think it's called. Yes. Which was rather daunting to put on. You know, three hours is a huge chunk of time. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, for when the movie came out, I think I, I, I gave it, a, it was either a two and a half or a three out of five for me. I had lots of problems with the storyline. And most of them were, were fixed with this yes. Ultimate Edition. Now, can um, I just say something right there, just before you continue? Mm-hmm. Right? Proof, okay? Proof that Zack Snyder is not to blame for the faults of Batman v Superman because he made his cut and he was forced to cut it down to get a two and a half hour uh, release. So people people call Zack Snyder for all the story problems of Batman v Superman that aren't there when he's actually allowed to release the cut that he wanted to release. When I did my first review, I said that uh, I loved everything that was Batman and I hated everything that was Superman. And I feel that most of the things that were added into the movie fixed all the problems I had with the Superman character. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they cut out a lot of this stuff because yeah. it gives it to the motivation as to why Superman is the way he is, why yeah. he's being persecuted the way he is, because Lex Luthor has manufactured all these lies. And, and the movie takes, I think it takes a brave step by not out and out just explaining Lex Luthor's master plan. You can get it from what's happening. He basically just wants to set these two guys up to fight and he manufactures the whole situation. He is behind everything in the, in the plot of the movie. And I don't understand why they took out the the, the woman that was um, paid off to lie or, yeah. or pressured to lie. The mercenaries destroying all the bodies yeah. at, at the start. They add so much to the plot. They, they give... Superman they're they're not trivial. They're not trivial in any no. way. They they literally change your outlook on 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 why things have happened, on why people are acting the way they are. 
Yeah. Um, it just it really boggles the mind. It's like the mm-hmm. studio have said, "Look, we just want to get Batman out there. Just like just make this a Batman movie, you know." Mm-hmm. And it's like y- you're idiots. You are literally idiots. I mean, you can see somebody looking at. You know, a bit of paper going, you know, if we take half an hour at this movie, we can get an extra showing in, which will make an extra two million that opening weekend. Or exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and for all the things that gets thrown at Snyder, there's one thing that, in my opinion, is undeniable, and he's one of the best best visualizations of, of just images on screen. You, know, you could pretty much take any single scene or a single frame out of the movie perfect composition a perfect work of art I, th- I think his mm. style yeah. is his own and yeah. it's stunning even the, the the scene at the start with Batman you know initially when that first happens you're like oh not again another yeah. Batman origin story but it's short it's visually impressive it's beautiful to look at isn't it yeah it, it really is the movie's not in my in my opinion perfect it does have some issues. There's one thing about it that makes me drop it half a star. If we like, we're, we're on letterbox scores now, so <clears throat> I would I would drop it half a star for this one thing. That if if they fix this one thing, it would be a perfect five out of five for me, and mm-hmm. that is the creation of Doomsday. It makes no sense. Um, like Lex Luthor's plan to create Doomsday makes no sense if they if they simply dropped in a line in which lex still had some kryptonite and had fashioned some kind of weapon to take out doomsday Mm -hmm. or i mean even that would make no sense because you'd think why wouldn't he just use it on superman but he just the fact that he creates this creature that okay could Uh kill superman but once it's killed superman what the hell's he gonna do then? He's got this beast running around. That's does it? Re- does he know what he's creating? Do you think he knows what he's creating? Do you I, think he knows that, that? Does it? Does he think he can control it? See, see, this is this is the thing. Like, that's the line of dialogue they need to drop in. They need to drop in a line of dialogue in which Lex believes he can control it. Um, he's you know he's looked at how to make this thing. He's obviously learned how to make this thing through the the uh, the ship because he's in contact with the ship. Um, but they should have dropped something in there that kind of alludes to the fact that, he, yeah, he's going to have control of this thing. He's going to be able to control it. Because the fact that he can't means that that plan makes absolute... It, it, it's just... it's Yeah, you kind of less scratching your head going, OK. There's a couple of things that just niggle at me. It's, it's the, the one that's complained about most is, you know, your mum's name's Martha. <laughs> right, right, right. I've, Let, I've, let's be best friends. No, 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 no. Right. I've really got to get off on one on this scene, okay? There's so much more to this scene, right? Okay. Preach Cl- brain. Cl- Cl- right. Clark Kent, okay, who is a reporter, uh-huh. he knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne, right? When he steps down on that rooftop, he calls him Bruce, right? He's had a beef with Batman from the start because he doesn't like his methods, so when he found out that he was Bruce Wayne, he would have obviously done his legwork. He'd, he'd have done some research into Bruce Wayne, found out who this guy was, what makes him tick, why has he become Batman. He would have learned about his parents and he would know full well the power 
knowing who Bruce Wayne's mother is would have over him. Now, him, people say it's stupid that he says, save Martha, save Martha. He'd say, save my mum, save my mum. No, he wouldn't, because this isn't just something that he's, he's spluttered out. He isn't at Batman's mercy here. He's out-thinking Batman. The point is, Batman has physically outmatched Superman in this fight scene, but Superman has outwitted the Dark Knight detective by using his mother's name against him. He knows the reaction that's going to have. And, and that's the way that that scene has always played to me, and I don't understand why people don't get that. Right, well, to, to throw your point back at you, like, that makes sense. It's a good point, but as you said with the Doomsday thing, he needs a line in there as to why he's made Doomsday. Yep. You're supposing a lot of information that the movie doesn't actually explain to you. If there was a scene of Clark Kent reading up on this information, I could totally take that point as, as validated. But like you said, Lex doesn't say anything about being able to control Doomsday. Clark doesn't say anything about researching Bruce Wayne. Yeah, but th- this it's, it's a given that he's a reporter, right? And when, b- before he... Uh, before we get to the end, he calls Batman Bruce. The fact that we know he he's a it's it's there. Like literally, with the thing with Doomsday, there is nothing, nothing at all there to suggest that um, that that Lex would have any control of this creature. Whereas if you look at throughout the film, Clark has been investigating, especially in the Ultimate Cut. Clark has been investigating Batman. He's he's had several encounters with Bruce Wayne. There's that moment where he hears Alfred talking in his earpiece. Um, so the, the fact that he knows he's, he's Batman, it makes perfect sense to me. Why else would he say, Martha, save Martha, and not, Mum, save my mum? For me, it's, it's not a head-scratcher. It's pretty self-evident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that went a place. <laughs> It, it's it's yeah. It's just not a problem for me in the film at all. It wasn't a problem in the theatrical in theatrical cut, and it's even less so in the ultimate cut. The movie was way improved, way better than the cinematic release. You know, it's I'll never. I, I got the ultimate edition. It comes with the theatrical edition. I'll never watch that. No, I won't. Yeah. I won't. Yeah, it just it's just never going to happen. But I think the movie was just it was teed up for a kicking. You know, and, and I don't buy all this Marvel versus DC nonsense because pretty much most movie fans just want to see a good movie. Yeah. And I think they, they, they sold themselves short by putting out a subpar movie when they had a better one. Yeah. Good to go. It's 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 Warner Brothers who are to blame. It's not yeah. Zack Snyder, it's Warner Brothers. The, oh, the script was there virtually. Like I say, just fix that doomsday problem and, you, and, and for me it's it'd be a 10 out of 10 for me. But... Yeah, you look at the ultimate cut, it's it's almost a perfect movie. And it, it's just, it's a shame because Warners have shot themselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. They earned themselves a ton of critical bashing that they can, they, they're never going to be able to get rid of. They can't take, they can't take it back. And and it, it was needless. It didn't need to happen at all. So what else have you been watching? Suicide Squad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Warner Brothers, what the hell are you playing at? You know, 
the stories I'm hearing about this film, about what they shot, what they filmed. Mm. Jared Leto has tons of his scenes on the cutting room floor, and it shows in the film. You, you, you look at his, his parts in the film, and you're like, actually, you know what? It's, a lot of this just doesn't make sense as to why it's here. It, it feels disjointed from, from the rest of what's going on. The, the editing is choppy throughout. Cara Delevingne, I'm still not sold on. I couldn't stand her in Paper Towns. I couldn't stand her in this. Uh, I so far yet to be convinced of her talent as an actress. I've only seen it once. I am going to go back and give it a second watch. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm somewhere between a two and a half and a three out of five. Yeah. I think the DC fanboy in me wants to give it that three, and I have kind of given it that three out of five. But the realist in me is kind of like, actually, you know what? In good conscience, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I can genuinely call this film good. But, but there are moments, you know? There are moments in it um, where you look at it and you think, actually, th- 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 there's got to be a good film in here somewhere. Yeah, and I'm I'm holding out for another ultimate cut, which is sad. Yeah. We shouldn't have yeah. to be holding out for ultimate cuts every time they come out. Have you have, have you done a review for Suicide Squad? I talked about it in the last episode of Letterboxd Sundays, but I'm, right. I didn't do a review just because. What more was there to say? You know, every yeah. man and his dog does a review of it. Yeah. So, um, I yeah. Um, I I did a review for it, and I'm much the same opinion as, as yourself I, I gave it a three but I, I hummed and hawed over it for days mm. trying to decide what I was going to give it I, I, I really liked the characters Yeah. almost everything else was just up in the air and I, I feel as, as well as they, they kind of shot themselves in the foot by having Will Smith in the movie because they tried to tailor the story around about his character mm. and even though they're all um, they're not nice people he is given this sort of moral conscience in yeah. the movie you know he's this assassin that took people and he only ever kills bad people as well they make that <laughs> apparent in the movie but one of the, the crazy things I, I right from the get go it was all the musical choices as well everybody there was so many hit song after hit song there was I can't remember a score I remember a yeah. playlist yeah. I can't remember a score and then right at the start it starts introducing characters Deadshot Harley Quinn then it jumps to a meeting between CIA where they reintroduce all the characters again. Yeah. Within the first ten minutes of the movie, we've had two, three introductions to the same characters. And yeah. I want to love it more than I do, and I like yourself. I said in my my review as well. I hope there's going to be an ultimate cut <laughs> that fixes all this. I mean, for what I read, there was two cuts made. There was a comedic cut and there was a darker cut, and then they kind of split the two and decided that's the one they were going to release. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just bizarre. It's like it's so disappointing because the trailers for Suicide Squad were some of the best trailers I've ever seen. Yeah, because they gave so nothing. The yeah, nothing away about the film, just the tone. They get mm. they gave you what the tone was, but when I got the film, that kind of wasn't the tone. It felt a bit plodding, and I didn't laugh. That's the thing. During the trailer, I laughed. At quite a few moments. And then actually watching the stuff in the context of the film, I just didn't laugh. I've said this a few times and I'll say it again. When the best thing about your film is Jai Courtney, you know you've got a problem. I 
I liked Jai Courtney in this. I really did. And that's impressive. That's an impressive feat to get me to like Jai Courtney. But that shouldn't be the best thing about your film. You know, I should not. I mean, I thought the best thing about Jai Courtney is he practically didn't have a role. <laughs> um, you know, which it, it, it was like you're given all these Suicide Squad members, but the only ones they really focus on are Harley Quinn and Deadshot. And, mm. and then this one really surprised me Katana. And no um, trailers or anything did I see this person. It's just another member of the squad just appears 40 minutes into the movie and you're like, who is this? What? Why? Anyway, I was out doing some shopping the, the, the other week and I just browsed the, 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 the DVD Blu-ray aisle as I'm passing through and I saw the Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night. Now, I've never seen this thing. Um, I think it's, what, 52 years old or something and I stuck it on the other night and I've got to say I absolutely loved it. I thought it was and I'm not a, a big Beatles guy at all I know kind of their main stuff and that but I, I found the movie to be hilarious um, it's such a dry humour that's through it as well and I can see me re-watching this quite a lot okay. uh, have you seen it? I've, I've seen one of the Beatles films when I was younger I may have seen bits from both to be honest and they've kind of emerged but mm-hmm. I I have to confess I hate the Beatles <laughs> I hate the Beatles. (laughs) I've had so much flack for that over the years. Um, Just people cannot believe how much I hate the Beatles. But yeah, I just do. And my 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 first and only girlfriend before my wife, she was mad on the Beatles, and that kind of made me hate them even more. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan. I do think they've uh, done some good songs, but they usually tend to be quite good when other people have covered them. Is what I found. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of the Beatles. Uh, mm. I just I've and lots of like books and things that I've read about this is it's directed by Richard Lester. Yeah, and uh, Superman Two fame. Yep, mm. um, and. It's regarded as one of the best British movies of all time, which is why I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to give this thing a shot. And you know what? I did enjoy it. I will go back to it. Okay, maybe I'll check it out. Maybe I'll uh, ah, get you, over you my bias. If you don't like the Beatles, then um, oh. they're pretty much all over this movie. I'm right. afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll give that one a miss. Um, yeah. Now, a film that again I. I feel like people have been a little bit too harsh on. One that I I actually quite enjoyed was Jason Bourne. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's have it. Now, here's the thing, right? If you come to it with a Bond mentality, which is that with a Bond movie, I know what I'm getting, and when I don't get it, I'm a bit, huh, okay... I, I kind of feel like Bourne is the American James Bond and it, it, it gave me what I expected from a Bourne film. Now, call that repetition if you want. <laughs> but I think the Bourne ultimatum is just as guilty 
of that repetition as Jason Bourne is. And people hail the Bourne Ultimatum as one of the best action films ever made. And that's the thing that grates on my nerves about the criticism here of Jason Bourne. If people didn't hold Ultimatum in such high regard, I'd say, yeah, you know what? You're right. It's repetitive in the same way that the Bourne Ultimatum was. But because they don't and they're suddenly attacking this movie, even though they're praising Barn Ultimatum, which was basically just a retread of Barn's supremacy. Um, yeah, for me, it's just like, actually, you know what? I, I, if, you, if you take them at face value, I kind of prefer Jason Barn over Barn Ultimatum because at least in this one, there's a personal connection there between the hitman that is trying to track Barn down. I've got two... Two, well, a few, but two major problems I'll, I'll lay it down to is the fact that the personal connection between the hitman and Bourne and, and the other movies, they're just doing their jobs, you know, they, that's their target if to take them down. This personal connection, well, first there's a connection where Bourne burned all the, the spies that were out there by releasing this information, which is fair enough. That I can understand. It's when they shoehorn it into later in the movie to a, a, another personal um, by having Vincent Cancel, you know having interacted with Bourne's father earlier in the movie type of thing. Yeah, yeah that, that felt like a step too far. Now, Bourne himself is highly intelligent and extremely capable and can think himself out of most situations, practically. Which, I mean, would you agree with that? You just say he's like, he's, he, feels like he kind of works his way out and he doesn't kind of luck himself out of situations, but in one scene, he falls off a roof, gets his foot tangled in a cable and somehow manages to survive like a several-storey drop by swinging into like a wall. And, a, and at that point, I was just like, OK... Here we go, bring on the invisible cars and the, the, the villain with the metal teeth. We're, 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 we're going full on Moonraker here, people. <laughs> um, and that just kind of uh, kind of lost it for me. Now, don't get me wrong, I had some excellent set pieces that you get with Damon and Greengrass. Like that, that, the whole scene in Greece, <coughs> which I've heard people bash, was, I thought, far and away the best scene in the movie. It was so exciting, so tense, and, and, and it, elevated, it kept getting bigger and more tense the further it went on as well. It was a great sequence. But I think I gave Bourne, Jim, uh, Jason Bourne three out of five. Uh, you know, I liked it. I stayed up against the rest of the Bourne franchise. It, it wasn't as good for me. For, for me, it was just business as usual, so I was happy with that. I was just, yeah, I get it. There are just certain films that come out and they get hammered by the critics. And, and I come into it like, like I just don't get it. I I, I come yeah. out and I'm and I'm like, what? That no. was good, right? <laughs> What's going on? But the thing is, I will say this. Um, I came out thinking that about Fantastic Four, and I I watched Fantastic Four fairly recently, and I <laughs> I, I I literally say to myself now, what? Was I smoking when I did my review? I was like, I must have been on crack when I gave it an eight out of ten in my review. Um, seriously, if I if I could take back any review that I've done, it would be that Fantastic Four review. Because <laughs> I watched yeah. it recently, I just thought, my goodness, this film is a mess. Yeah, um, that, that movie's bad. So you know, maybe I'll see Jason Bourne when it comes on DVD and think. What was I smoking? But for now, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm happy with it. One other thing I watched, I recently 
uh, watched Scream season two on Netflix. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Scream movies. I love slasher movies. I mean, they were making it into a TV series. I was not really too bored. I wasn't that invested in it, but I thought I'd give it a watch anyway. And I've got a, a strange say, perception of Scream. I absolutely love it. I can't wait to get to the next episode. But the programme itself is utter crap. <laughs> you know, it's just a strange dichotomy. It's like the, the acting, the acting is atrocious. Some of the dialogue is beyond eye-rollingly cringy. It's just, and what the characters got up to, you just, you're like, that's just not going to happen. I can't believe I'm watching this nonsense. Is the next episode about to start? Oh, thank God. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like I love it, yet I can see all these faults with it and I just cannot get enough of the thing. And I think it's driven by the mystery of who the colour is. You know, I need to find out who the colour is, but yeah. it's it's a bonkers TV programme. It's not one that I can say, watch it, you're going to love it, because <laughs> it's not that great. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not that great, but man, I, I think I watched the full season in three days. Yeah. Like literally, any spare moment I had, I was watching Scream. I mean, I wasn't watching about it. I was bad mouthing it to somebody. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the the Scream films played quite. They had quite a big impact on me uh, when I was a teenager because Scream, the first Scream, was the first eighteen I ever saw in the cinema, and I was sixteen mm-hmm. years old at the time. I, I I saw it too so many times that I can't really watch it now because it's just it, I'm just completely numb to it. Yeah. Um, but I would still say that it, it's one of the best horror films um, of all time. It's one of my favourite horror films of all time. Anyway, uh, I gave it a ten out of ten. Well, I gave mm-hmm. it like five star review when uh, when when I was into it, and then Scream Two, I, I'd have given a four star review. Scream Three, I'd have given a three star review. So mm-hmm. you can see a pattern forming. I got to Scream 4 and I was just like, you know what, I'm done. I can't be bothered. But yeah, still yeah. The, fir- the first two films I would still hold in quite high regard. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've, I've no desire to see the series. And, and based on your comments, just, uh, I've, I've even less so now. <laughs> <laughs> One final film I guess I'd just like to touch on um, that I've seen is The Shallows. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was quite a nice surprise, actually. It's from the director of all those Liam Neeson action films that are kind of like your your bargain basement action movies. Good, but nothing particularly outstanding. Uh, I think this is easily his best film. Uh, It it definitely has more of an independent feel to it, Mm -hmm. even though the special effects in it are, are... quite brilliant in at times it's the best shark movie since jaws i would say better yeah. than jaws the revenge uh, oof, oof. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's that's painful this um, time it's personal oh good grief man <laughs> one of the most painful films to watch in my life but yeah de- definitely you know it's better than deep blue sea better than open water Better than uh, a few others I can think of. Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. <laughs> it, it was good. It was it was tense. Uh, you, I, I think Blake Lively did a very good job of carrying the whole movie because obviously she's in every scene. Mm-hmm. Um, she's it, it's one of those films where there isn't a right lot of characters in it. It's just her and like a handful of other people. So she's literally in every moment of the film. 
And she does a, job, a good job as the, as the lead actress in that. No really more to say about it other than it was just it was a nice surprise. It was a good, yeah. tense little I, I seen this one in the cinema as well. I, I really liked it. Um, I had one problem with it and I think, I'm going to have to see this again, but I think it was the audience that I saw it with. The section of the cinema, people were just, I mean, it was as if this was the funniest comedy they've ever seen in their life. They were just <laughs> like absolutely knotting themselves with laughter. <laughs> and I think that it just kind of ruined it for me because I wanted to see it. And, um, I, I'm, and at, at the end of it, when she's going down um, and the, the shark's chasing her and she moves out of the way, that whole thing's happened. I mean, these these guys literally were doubled over in two in hysterics at this thing. You know, you can't help but have something like that impact your viewing. CP from Will I Like It Reviews, uh, he went to see uh, the M. Night Shyamalan film, The, the Visit, right. at the cinema, and he, he had the exact same experience. He said everyone was just laughing at it all the way through, and it was just... It kind of just really ruined that experience for him. He he couldn't quite understand what people were laughing at, really, because um, mm-hmm. it's not a funny film. If you if you've seen it, I I, I certainly didn't find it a funny film. <laughs> Today I I said The Shallows was my final one, but I just want to say that I took my daughter, my two and a half year old daughter, to the cinema for the first time today. And she sat through Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip, on the kids' club. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with these movies. I enjoyed it. It's not a good film. Um, but the fact that my daughter sat through the whole film with me in the cinema, it, it was a good moment for me. It was... Mm. It was the first, you know I've been looking forward to this moment for a long time. It's a shame that the first film she's ever seen in the cinema is... An Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, but hey, you know what? I'll take it. Um, I'm 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 good with that. But yeah, that's it. As for for, for the watch list, I'm done. So unless there's anything else you've got, yeah. So next episode, I'm thinking the Frighteners. I've not seen it in years. I love this movie. It's a Peter Jackson movie. Michael J. Fox. I take it you've seen it. Yes, I have. Uh, I remember it quite. I used to. I used to have it on DVD. I had a big purge years ago, and that was one of the ones that ended up going. But not because I disliked it. It's been a while. It's been a while since I've seen it. So it'd be one. It'd be a good one to to go back to. I think and have a look. Okay, for the next episode, I'm thinking top five horror comedy movies. I know this is a hard genre to get right, so I'm really interested in what you're going to pick in this one, Brian. But yeah, definitely. Your top five horror comedy movies. Okay, yeah, so that's it. That is this episode of Brits on Flicks. Uh, join us next time for The Frighteners, which I'll be looking forward to. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channels. You can find me on YouTube at Brian Lomax Movie Talk, and you can find Graham over at Man V Film. Uh, but until next time, thanks for listening. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason and plot. Excellent. Okie doke. Jeez, O'Brien, that's a bit of a long one. It, that is. is. Uh, oh, just coming up to two hours. Blimey, that's going to take some editing. <laughs>